we got to pack a three-hour show into about 90 minutes here, Renee. We can do it. I think we can. No baseball, no sports, no <laughs> no movies, nothing like that. We got to get we got to get right to work. Uh, okay. Got a good list of topics. I'm going to say number one. I want to talk about uh, MacBook keyboard failures. It's a recurring sure. theme on the show, and in between the last episode of this show and and us talking today, uh, a fellow I know <laughs> got hit by the. Speck of dust to doom, and that yeah. fellow would be you. Yeah, um, I, like you, I think we both had a bunch of different review units uh, since they came out in 2016. They were the original Skylake ones. They were last year's KB Lake ones. Uh, between MacBooks and MacBook Pros, and my own and Apple's, I've probably gone through eight, and I've used two or three of them consistently, and I never had any problem. And then two weeks ago, the control key stopped working and i don't use the control Ugh. key often i use it for terminal and ludicrously to pick up to pull out the emoji keyboard picker <laughs> yes, you, yes 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 yeah <laughs> and i wasn't able to do that anymore uh for people who do not know you can type on a mac you can type control command space and it brings yeah. up the emoji picker uh, and it's a fantastic feature I, I, it's funny. I've kind of gotten away from tips and tricks in recent years. I don't know why, but it's like I've started, I'll, I'll get to some later that are on the show notes, but, uh, that's another one. And it's like, I know that there's some cool third party utilities that help with emoji and stuff like that. But I think if people knew about the command control space and the fact that you can search, uh, yes, it's, it's a fantastic feature. It's so it's like, you know, you type flower and it's like all the flower emoji show up, um, uh, Oh, I love this feature. But anyway, yeah, and I, you can't I, I, reassign it. So if the control key is gone, you just you can't use it. <laughs> oh god. Uh. <laughs> uh, which, which exact model was this? It was a MacBook Pro, correct? Uh, yeah, it was a 13-inch MacBook Pro with the Touch Bar. All right. So what's the current stat? So you made a video. I have it in the show notes. It will be yes. there, and you can you, you know you went through the rigmarole with the uh, Apple support document where you hold the the macbook at a precise 61 degree angle <laughs> and then hold the can of air at a 57 degree angle uh, yeah and you can't go too far because then it'll push cold out and not dust and you'll get I, I, not that i did this too often but you'll right. get like frozen stuff all over your keyboard i think that's why some people like uh, uh, you know it's just like everything in life where it's like you can go really cheap or really expensive but i know some people have those uh instead of buying the, the the aerosol cans of compressed air you can get like an actual mechanical device you know which i think solves yes. that problem of of when you hold it at a weird angle it turns to ice and you worry that you're about to give yourself frostbite or something like that yeah, no, I went through all of that, and it worked-ish. If I hit the control key a little more briskly than I usually hit keys, and I hit, I bias towards the left side, it works, but it's not it's not comfortable. Um, I have I have been shown how to take the key off. I have friends in the industry, and they've shown like an easy way of taking the key off. So I'll probably do that next. Pop it off, clean it more thoroughly, pop it back on. See, now I've heard that taking the keys off this model of keyboard is it, it, uh, in the litany of things that are bad about this keyboard design what i've heard is that it is a precarious uh yes. it is very precarious and that you can damage it you know and that in fact it's so easy to do that even people who take it in for service like the genius or might try to do it and therefore it's covered but then it's like oh 
broke a little piece of plastic. Now the whole top piece has to go back and be replaced. Yeah, like apparently the space bar is just impossible because it will break if you try to take it That's off. That's what I've I heard, some yeah. Of, yeah. Some of the other keys aren't as dangerous. Um, so I, I might try that or I might just take it to the gym. And I, I use my space bar. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so does Casey Neistat, apparently. He had yeah. huge complaints about the space bar. All right. So your current status is you haven't taken it in for service. You're no. thinking about performing surgery. And you yes. know what the worst part is? Control is the one, you know, there's, there's option and command on both sides, yes. but only one control yeah, key. Yeah, absolutely. And I should preface this by saying that um, I, I, I didn't have any problems at all with these keyboards. My previous generation MacBook, before this new keyboard, the Scissor Switch one, I had the E key fail and I took it in and... Uh, I had it was like five hundred dollars because they had to swap out the entire top case uh, and battery assembly as well, and it took twenty four hours. It was covered by Apple Care, um, so I I was just thought I was lucky, but now apparently there's just no generation of MacBook whose keys uh, I can I can tolerate. Oh, well, and we have WWDC next week, so you need this thing, right? I mean, this is do you have like a a plan B? Yeah, I I, th- I still have um, the review unit they gave us last year for uh, macOS High Sierra, mm-hmm. which I haven't used very much. Um, but I might. Uh, it's 15 inches, which I don't usually travel with. But I might do that and just bring my MacBook Pro with me. Sorry, my on an airplane. My iMac Pro. Well, I would just use. Sorry, right. I keep saying I, I use the iPad Pro on the airplane now, just yeah. because the seats have gotten so small, it feels yep. like they're not Mac friendly. No, that's true. It's very true. I I I can't remember the last time I used a. I guess the only time I sometimes use a Mac on a on a plane is very specifically the return flight home after an apple event if i haven't yeah. finished writing about it that's like the one time like i don't do any kind of general productivity with a with a mac on an airplane it's just too unwieldy even when uh, like, even when i get upgraded and i'm in first class it's uh and there's plenty of room uh, it's still it's just ungainly you know, yeah, it's like no. you're not. It's not like you're short a room, but there's like no good place to put it. It's like you can literally put it on your lap, and that's it's not really a great angle. And then you put it on the tray, and it. it I feel like I'm a little kid at the lunch table, and my arms are up at my shoulders. You know, it's like too high. And the funny thing for me is I'm keyboard agnostic. Like I can use the iPad Pro fine. I do tons of writing on it. I can use the old MacBook keyboard, the new one. I was setting up the the review unit that I hadn't used in a long time, and those keys are just super tight. And then I went back to the 2016 one that I've been using for two years. Like all these butterfly keys feel all yeah. loosey goosey now. It's yeah. amazing how fast your brain acclimatizes. Oh yeah, I totally. I mean, I've I've never really used the new one. And ben, ben Thompson and I talked about this, I think, on the last episode. I've never really used one as my main machine. I've only used review units. My Personal yeah. MacBook Pro is still a 2014, but even after just a few minutes with the other one, it, it, this keyboard, I love it because, because I feel it's 100% reliable, yeah. but it does feel like the like, like the keys are all ready to fall off. They're so jiggly. See, they both betrayed me now, so I have no safe harbor. Uh, all right. Uh, but it is, I mean, like a lot of people are complaining that you do have to replace the entire top assembly. Yeah. And that's that's an industry-wide problem. And it's a trans-industry yeah. problem because Apple made unibodies. And they're much better structurally, but they're huge things you have to replace. And your car now has these huge crash panels and crumple zones. If you get a little dent, you've got to replace the entire panel. And as we get better and better at manufacturing stronger and more efficient devices, we lose we lose the miniature, like the, oh, I, the modularity of them. You know, this is... A, 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 I'll hear from it, and I know that there are people listening to the show who are on the other side of the fence and who are angry, if you know, but have very strong feelings about the entire industry. But Apple and Apple specifically's move away from modular devices, meaning 
you know, the best example, this is a primary example is remo- removable batteries, right? Yes. I mean, it, again, it was a topic on my show, one of the most recent episodes, but it's funny the way that it used to be like, it seems so antiquated now, but part of like the pre W WWDC trip checklist is uh, make sure both of your MacBook batteries are fully yes. charged, <laughs> right? Where's that spare? Where's the spare that I haven't used since the last time I went on a big trip? Oh, there it is. What's the charge on that one? Uh, you know, and it just seems so ridiculous now. Now it's the uh, external USB-C battery. <laughs> right. But, you know, and it's the same, you know, with a phone. It's, it's yeah. just, you know, there's just uh, something goes wrong. And usually a lot of it has to be replaced. And, and yes. I get it, you know, and, and there's trade-offs, you know. There, there were advantages to being able to just swap out the keyboard without swapping out everything else. But there's also disadvantages. And like you said, you know, the structural integrity of the unibody designs is incredible. Like, yeah. you pick up an old... Uh, you know, MacBook from 10, 15 years ago. And not only does it feel thick and heavy, but it just feels it's, sort it's of creaky junk. Yeah. <laughs> creaky. Exactly. It's like, man, I can't believe that. I can't believe that we tolerated this. We were spending $3,500 on these things right. back then and they creak. <laughs> and that's the opportunity cost. It's like everybody wants everything, but you can't, everything's a trade-off. Right. Apple can design right. for structural integrity or they can design for modularity. Right. You, you can't have both. You got to have right. trade-offs. So I'm, I'm on board with that. That's the trend. Uh, I see why I, I, you know, I see that the train left the station years ago. I'm, I'm on board with it, but that to me, it's not an argument that Apple should go somehow figure out a way to make a keyboard that can be swapped in if the keyboard goes bad. The argument is is that they with this design the keyboard needs to be more reliable than yes. ever, right? Like it, it's not just that this keyboard isn't reliable enough, it's that it really should be given how how hard it is to replace and how in, integrated it is with the whole top piece. It really ought to be more reliable than the previous design. And that like, was the worst part. Apple Insider did a great job with the numbers, but almost right. nobody actually bothered to read the article. What it's, it didn't say that they were more... Uh, there was so, so just to back up for a second, right. in every way, the new MacBook Pro looks to be way more reliable than previous generations. The number of incidents in their sampling pool were way down in everything except for keyboard. In 2016, they were way up. In 2017, they looked like they approached yep. 20, uh, 2015 levels again. But that's when the rest of the computer got way, way better and the keyboard really didn't. Yeah. So we're just left to see that maybe it was worse. Maybe they've slowly improved it, but it hasn't seen anywhere near the improvements of the rest of the body. Yeah. Uh, The one that I like the most is the hinge. Uh, and when they yeah. first came out with these devices, uh, and I had my briefing, and like they said, like this is you know, we can't put everything in a keynote. And there's some things that would sound silly in a keynote, like bragging about the hinge. But that the <laughs> the new hinge compared to like my 2014, a the biggest difference is that it's so much easier to open the screen without like with just a thumb without the bottom moving and to with like one p- finger to position it at exactly the angle you want and it'll stay there right like so it's easier to move you know to to adjust the angle that it's open but yet also just as stable in terms of oh it's not going to droop a little bit when you let go it's it's truly a fantastic hinge and i believe it's actually more reliable i think that's one of the cuz it's a common source of failure uh, yes because you know there's so much that goes passes between the display and the the bottom part. All right, that's it for the keyboard. Uh, <laughs> oh, here's one. Here's a here's a tip and trick I posted over the weekend. I've I've avoided this feature my entire life. There's a feature in iOS that you can turn on in uh, security, you know, in the settings uh, that after ten failed passcode attempts, mm-hmm. wipe the device. 
and I, I forget when they added that. I, I think it was back around IS four. It's I, when I, they added the hardware uh, encryption because they could just yeah. throw the keys away. Right. They didn't have to actually wipe the device. Right. It's right. That's the way that works. Is it? You know, you're, everything on your on your SSD and your phone is encrypted, um, and rather than sit there and wait for a 256 gigabyte drive <laughs> to be wiped, they can just throw away the key, and without the key. There's no way it's it's yeah. effectively unreadable. Um, it's pseudo random gibberish to anybody who looks at it. Right. Um, I avoided this feature for the reason that it it seemed like a good idea, and you know, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to think. Of how, what are the hypothetical cases? Like, I personally, I'm not really worried about law enforcement. I, to my knowledge, I haven't broken any laws other than <laughs> the speed limit. Uh, in a number of years, but it's possible. It's, you know, I, I don't know. It, something could happen, you know. Uh, uh, and if my phone were taken by, you know, I don't know, TSA agents or something. Or at, even at, just a thief who wants to not have to bother with right. activation lock That's, to get into the phone. But the most common scenario for me would be a thief, you know, and, it, you know, it could be something like it falls out of my pocket in a cab and I, I leave it and somebody else picks it up. In theory, I don't want to be paranoid, but, uh, you know, remember when Matt Honan from yeah. now at BuzzFeed got targeted as, as a journalist a couple of years ago and had his iCloud account hacked. And once his iCloud account was hacked because they had access to his email and he used that email for a whole bunch of other services, you know, he got owned in a bunch of ways. It's possible that somebody, you know, a WWDC who knows who I am could try to take my phone or something like that. Yeah. Um, I never turned it on, but then I looked at, and I just have been reevaluating my security stuff overall, just sort of a self audit on what do I do? And I'm looking at two factor stuff too. Like how do I keep track of those one-time codes? Um, but I looked at this feature and I realized that I had misinterpreted it all along ever since until this weekend. I thought that you could, if you turn this on, somebody who got your phone, like a prankster at a bar, you know, a quote unquote friend who just, you know, yeah. you leave your phone, that they could sit there and enter one, two, three, four, 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 ten times. And then boom, your phone's erased. Yeah. Ha ha. Uh, turns out it doesn't work like that at all. And the difference is, well, number one, I asked in a poll on Twitter, which I, f I find fun sometimes. Uh, do you enable the feature? And I got, you know, do you use that feature? Um, and out of 4,700 votes, plus a bunch of uh, Tweetbot users who just wrote yes, yes or no, <laughs> no problem. Yeah. Uh, but it seemed to run like this. Almost exactly, it was 34% and 66%. So exactly one-third, two-third. One-third enable it, two-third don't. And the number one reason people gave for not is, no, I have kids. Meaning yes. they don't want their kid. You know, you're sleeping. Kid comes in the bedroom, picks up your phone, starts playing with it, trying to unlock it. And then all of a sudden your phone's erased. Well, here's the thing that this feature is so much more clever than I had thought. And I shouldn't be surprised. Um, you get five free, att free attempts at, at your passcode. Five as fast as you can enter them. But after that fifth failed one, you're putting a one-minute timeout where the only thing you can do with your phone is make a 911 call. And if the sixth one fails, you go to a five-minute timeout. And if, if that one fails, you go to a 15-minute timeout. And I think it, I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't press my luck further than that. But apparently it, the timeouts escalate to the point where no matter how long you wait between tries, it takes at least three and a half hours to get 10th. Yeah. To, to enter the 10th one, um, 
which it's once I realized that I was like, of course, I turned it on instantly on every iOS device I have because yeah. I cannot imagine a scenario where the phone is out of my hands for and, and you know without my knowledge for three and a half hours and and where I wouldn't want this feature enabled. Yes. <laughs> No, I mean, it's a, there's a classic debate, and I have to credit uh, Dave Nanian of SuperDuper for opening my eyes to it. I was all about everything has to be encrypted, everything has to be safe, everything has to be secure. And when I was talking to him for an article, he said, well, no, because in a lot of cases, you don't want fail uh, secure, you want fail safe. There are circumstances where your worst nightmare is information being stolen from you. But in other situations, your worst nightmare is you losing access to right. that information. And it's why some people will never encrypt backup drives, because if those have your wedding photos or the photos of your children being born, uh, you cannot do disk recovery on an encrypted on an encrypted drive. So if somebody right. else steals those photos, yeah, they have your photos. But if you lose them, you're getting divorced. Like there's right. just no no way to come back from that. And and this to me, I think people were worried that they would lose their data. Yeah. Someone like their kid would type it in. But this is really a case where you can have that security. You're not you're not risking the deletion of your information. Yeah. One of my favorite tips along those lines, and I remember when I first read it, I was just like, no. Uh, but it was because it was from somebody who I trust implicitly, Bruce Schneier, security expert, great writer. Um, but he wrote a couple of years back, and he's referenced it since, that for a lot of typical users, a great way to keep track of your passwords, especially important ones, is to write them down on a piece of paper. Uh, and you think like, no, that Which sounds absurd, right? <laughs> right. But they're like, but his explanation, it makes sense, is that people have been good at keeping physical objects, important physical objects secure and in a known location forever. Like we're kind of hooked up evolutionarily to be able to keep a physical object yeah. safe. It's the digital stuff that, that we can make goofy absent-minded mistakes or be tricked into phishing or something like that. Um, but like if, you know, you keep your passport safe, why not keep a paper, you know, a piece of paper with your most important passwords, wherever you keep your passport. Uh, yeah. It's probably way safer than any digitals and, and less likely to be, you know, victimized by phishing or something than anything you could do digitally. And this is also part of when you listen to uh, you know Apple's rationale for why they stay in countries like China or the data repatriation thing. You know France wants citizens' data to be local to that country, and you can understand this on a on a global scale. And some countries we happen to like better than others, or we are less afraid of than others. But no one really likes the idea of a foreign government having ownership of their data. But one of the things that big companies have to factor in is for an average citizen, even in China, even in the EU, even in North America, South America, whatever, some of them care less about security than they do about backup and them keeping access to iCloud photo library, as silly as it sounds, is is so much more important to them than them having access to a VPN app. Yeah. Uh, and they have to balance the interests of, of a very large customer base. Hmm. Totally true. All right, let me take a break here and thank our first sponsor. It is one of my favorite sponsors. What a fa fabulous product these people sell. Away. Away makes... Um, Suitcases, really, travel bags and accessories. Uh, and they're just fantastic. They use high-quality materials and have a much lower price compared to other brands because they're one of these, you know, internet companies, you know, typical podcast advertiser. They sell direct. They make them. They make these things themselves. They design them themselves, and they sell them direct to you. So there's no retail markup like you get when you buy a suitcase at a, you know, retail store. Uh, truly, truly low prices for a really high-quality suitcase they have over 10 colors and five sizes the sizes are the most uh 
aptly named sizes I could imagine. They're called the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium, the large, <laughs> and the kids carry-on. Uh, you know exactly how big these things are just from the names, right? Uh, all their suitcases are made with premium German polycarbonate that's very lightweight. I can verify this. And bends but never breaks. The interior features a patent-pending compression system useful for overpackers. This is one of my favorite features about this suitcase because my previous carry-on was effectively just a big rectangle. I had it for years and years and years. Uh, I mean, maybe close to 20 years. Um, but you just opened it up and it's just a big rectangle of volume and I would just stuff everything in there. The, the, the little features, the, it's not a lot, it's not complicated, but the couple of features they have uh, in here, um, like a little panel that you can secure down with a belt, keeps your shirts from getting wrinkled up. Uh, they have a little bag that's perfect for uh, storing your dirty clothes so you, your dirty clothes aren't getting mixed in with clean. Uh, it's really great. It's a really great system. They've got four 360-degree spinner wheels. They're great wheels, really. I, I've had this bag. If, you can, if you're a longtime listener, you know that Away's been sponsoring this show for a while. And they sent me one of these suitcases back when I first started sponsoring. And the thing still looks brand new. It looks like I, I could take it back. Uh, honest to God, it looks like I could take it back and get a refund. It's in such great shape. And that's not like I baby it. But the wheels are as good as they were on the first day. Um, it's really great. And the other thing is the carry-ons come with a built-in battery that you can use as USB ports, and you can use it to charge whatever, anything that charges over USB. Uh, and I know that there's some rules on certain airlines now about these built-in batteries. You can take it out very easily. So if you're flying somewhere and they're like, you know, you got to take the battery out, you can just take it out. It's not a problem. It's not like you can't take your suitcase on the plane because you have a battery. It comes right out. Uh, but it's just such a convenient thing. So it's like every seat in the airport now has, for me, has a charger because I've got my bag with me. You don't have to hunt around for the seats that happen to be near an outlet or something like that. Um, anyway, they have a 100-day free trial. So you buy it, use it for three months, and if you don't like it, you can get a refund. Uh, no reason to worry about it. Uh, and they have free shipping on any order within the contiguous U.S. So sorry, Alaska. Um, anyway. Uh, it's a great product. I use it. I'll be packing it for WWDC over the weekend. Uh, wouldn't want to travel without it. It's a really great bag. Very lightweight, great wheels, everything like that. Here's the deal for re or listeners of the show. You save 20 bucks at awaytravel.com slash talk show. Awaytravel.com slash talk show. And remember that promo code talk show. No the, just talk show. And you can save 20 bucks at checkout. Uh, so there you go. Save 20 bucks at awaytravel.com slash talk show. Uh, next on the list, we got to keep going. We got so yeah. much, so much. Uh, do you know what? I, 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 while we're talking about security, uh, there's these apps. One of the things that I've done, I, this isn't even on the notes, but uh, one of the things that I've, I've been convinced of is that using your phone number as a second factor in two-factor auth, meaning, you know, you say, oh, I'll, I'll use two-factor with this service, and I'll enter my name, my password, and then it'll send me an SMS message with a code, and I can enter the code. Um, it's better than not having two-factor, but SMS, is, I, I'm con I, I've been convinced, is not something you should rely upon because of how many times I've seen stories of people, their carrier getting... Uh, 
social engineered effectively. So somebody who wants to steal Renee Ritchie's, you know, Dropbox account and they know your phone number, they could call your carrier and say, Hey, this is Renee Ritchie. Uh, this is my phone number. Uh, I need to, you know, I need to get a new SIM because I got this new phone. You know, what do I, you know, and you'd think that shouldn't work, <laughs> but, and I don't think it's easy. I don't think it always works. But I th- I've read enough horror stories that it's not trustworthy. Well, I'll go a step further. I mean, I, I refuse to use that because I've heard stories about people who are traveling and, you know, they have their tickets on their phone, they present it, and the custom person will just seize the phone. And then they see two-factor. They can type in a request for it, get it on the phone, and get into your account. So hmm. it's, uh, I just don't think it's secure at all. Hmm. It's out of band, but it's, right. it, doesn't, it doesn't add any security to your device. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and it's also the case, I, 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 you know, and it's rare. I mean, it's, it's, you know, this is not something you want to optimize for, but it is an issue is you're in an airplane or yeah. you're overseas uh, where you're just on Wi-Fi so you don't have to incur roaming fees uh, and you've got Wi-Fi, but you can't get an SMS, right? It's because you can't get a phone call up in the air. Uh, it's just not great. So I, I've tried to get rid of my phone number as a second factor on any service that will let me, including Google. Um, like my Google accounts, I have a few, but my Google accounts, none of them know my phone number anymore. I don't use my phone for anything related to uh, my accounts if I can. But then what do you use for a second factor? Well, Apple use Apple lets you not think about it because mm-hmm. Apple uses uh, just the devices themselves, right? The assumption is if you have more than one Apple device and you can say that you trust one, it will send push notifications. Like you may, people out there may not even realize they're not using SMS for this, that it's just <laughs> sort of a, 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 ma- a magic right to your device. You know, if your phone's your trusted device and you're setting up a new iPad, and you're logging into iCloud, it'll send a push notification to, you know, your other trusted devices. You might get the same thing on your Mac and your phone, but then you answer it on one, put the code in, and then it's all good. And then the new device is added to your list of trusted devices. Um, that's not going to, you know, that's something Apple can do. And I think they've done a great job and it's sort of unheralded, but it wouldn't work for, you know, somebody like Dropbox or something like that. So what you can do... And again, I'm not an expert on this, but they have these these things. I forget the name of the protocol. It's like TOT something. But effectively, it's it's a way, it's a standardized way to get one-time expiring passwords that only last for like 30 seconds. Google has an app called Google Authenticator. Have you ever used that? Yeah. I, I used to. I use Authy now. Ah, that's where, and that was what I'm switching to. That's yeah. exactly great minds think alike. So, but they they generate the the same type of codes. They're six digit n- numbers. They only last for thirty seconds. And then the apps, all the apps I've tried, show you like so. If you have you know whatever your name is at gmail dot com, uh, you open up the the app and it'll say whatever your name at gmail dot com, and it might say you know seven two nine one two three. But it'll tell you that it's got 20 seconds left. So if it you know says it only has three seconds left, just wait to, you know three seconds. It'll give you the new one for the next 30 seconds, then enter it in, and you're in. Um, what I, I've been using, so I've been using Google Authenticator for this for about a year. And as part of my reevaluating my security stuff, the one thing that's annoying that's annoys me about it is that it's Google Authenticator is tied to one phone. Yeah. Um, 
So like I have it on my iPhone, but then when I get a new iPhone, it's like I have to kind of be careful because I don't want to wipe the old phone until I've set up the new phone and use the old phone to get the Google Authenticator codes because they're only being generated on that one device. Um, and it, 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 if I lost the phone, if somebody stole it, if it broke, if I dropped it and it just shattered, somebody steals it, whatever, um, you're not locked out of your accounts. There's, you know, recovery codes that you can print. And again, like the thing I just said, like keep them in a secure location. Um, there's ways to recover, but there's no easy way to get right in. Um, yeah. Wouldn't it be better if you could get it from any device? And that's what Authy does. Authy syncs these things so you can install the Authy app, A-U-T-H-Y. Um, and then you can have, you know, you can get this and you can get the same codes on multiple devices. So I'm yeah. in the midst of moving everything from Google Authenticator to Authy for that reason. I use 1Password for passwords and they now have uh, two-factor built into mm-hmm. it that they didn't at the time. So I just got started with Authy yeah. and I stayed that way because I, I don't, I like having a separate app for that. Yeah, well, I know a couple of people. Ben Thompson, in particular, he uses One Password, and he yeah. uses Authy for the one-time fee. He's the one who kind of pushed me towards this. Um, and his explanation is exactly. He's just. It, it, it maybe it's not even logical, but he just doesn't want to have the password and the second factor yeah. in the same app. You know, like it somehow feels more compartmentalized to have your password in One Password and have your you know one-time authentication code in a separate app i looked at one i don't use one password for my passwords i just use the keychain uh, yeah but i looked at one password as a as a rival to authy f- because i could have it on my phone and my mac and get you know do the just use it for these one-time keys and it's a great app i could see why people like it but it, it doesn't make sense to use it only, in my opinion, to use it only for the one-time things. Like you're either buying into the one-password lifestyle and putting everything in one password, or it's overkill. So for me, I didn't. I like the idea of iCloud Keychain, but until iPhone 10 and Face ID, they never put any sort of security intercept between um, the the device and the password. So let's just say you know someone's lost and they want to use your phone, or you're at a conference and someone wants to show you a website. You hand them their your phone, and they have immediate access to your passwords and your credit cards. Where with something like One Password or you know LastPass or or Dashlane, all those things, they'd have to enter in another password or use Touch ID or Face ID to get it. But now with iPhone. 10 and the face id thing if it had launched like that if it had launched with touch id support i would have probably gone all in on it well i get away from that because i don't let anybody use my phone (laughs) that's fair (laughs) not really a problem (laughs) but anyway authy i I recommend it so my the takeaway from this segment of the show is if you're using sms as a second factor on various services i say look into taking an afternoon cleaning this up get rid of sms as your second factor um there's also just the fact that SMS isn't encrypted. And again, what, yeah. you know, what are the Russian, are the, is the Russian, uh, uh, you know, spy agency going to come in and, and uh, put a tap on the line and, and intercept this unencrypted SMS? I really doubt it. If, and, you know, I, I, but still it is unencrypted. It just seems, it just seems wrong in principle to use an unencrypted uh, protocol to send 
<laughs> something that should be definitely well, be no, encrypted. Totally. And we're in, living in a in a time when we have vast data storage capabilities, and it seems like organizations just collect this data and sit on it. And you never like no one's doing anything criminal here, but you never know when something's going to happen, an accident will happen, or a lawsuit or a criminal prosecution will ensue, and they'll be able to go backwards in time and just look at all the data they collected on you and find something to support right. whatever they want to get you on. And I don't even want to risk that. All right. All right, next topic. Uh, oh, anyway, so takeaway. Get rid of SMS as a second yes. factor and look into Authy uh, if you're looking for a, a client to uh, sync these things. Uh, I suppose there's some mild security trade-off between the way that Authy syncs these things. Now, what they sync to the server is encrypted. So it, you know, there's nothing on Authy's server. It's end-to-end encrypted. So it's not like your code, somebody can log into your Authy account and see your codes. Um you know, or or if their server was compromised, that your codes would be exposed. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose there's some kind of security advantage to Google Authenticator's only on one device thing, but the the convenient it's just so inconvenient when that's the device you're looking to replace. Yes. Especially if you lose it, then right. you're done. Especially so. if you lose it, right? Um. Anyway, next topic. Um, uh, got to get this out. I, I don't think I talked about it. I think this whole thing erupted in between the last show and this show. Uh, I've had a bit of a bit of a gap in the programming schedule uh but this whole thing with google google's duplex demo on stage at io which i raised some questions about i never even thought about it until you said it i was just all i was all hooked right in i I, it took me a day the first day i watched and it was in my opinion i know that there uh, for android you know io is google's version of wwdc and there's two types of news there's you know it to to use two very broad buckets. There's general purpose news of, of interest to anybody who uses the platform. And then there's developer news. And so the developer news for Android is a bit outside my wheelhouse. Like I, I don't know how big a deal the new Android and Chrome OS features are. App slices. Um, <laughs> but in terms of stuff that broke through out of, you know, developer news into mainstream news, I don't think there's any question that this duplex demo was the one that got the most attention. Um, it, it for two reasons. It seemed like just the fact that it w- supposedly worked that you could say, you know, hey Dingus, call whatever hair salon and try to get me an appointment Wednesday afternoon, uh, and that it would actually place a phone call and have this interaction and make a phone call according to the recordings they played. That's interesting enough because that's, that's a serious break. That would be a serious breakthrough in, in this voice driven assistant stuff. Like nobody has anything that does that does that right now. That's, that's a breakthrough. And then the second factor, uh, is the, the, vocal intonations where the assistant was doing these ums and uh, you know these verbal tics that it gave it a life a a, a rather uncanny lifelikeness like and and you could hear gasps from the audience and i think that's why it was so engaging and i realized and and day one the the you know the takes were wow google has this amazing voice assistant that can make phone calls and it sounds human and immediate you know 15 minutes later followed up by wow this thing is really creepy you know yes right and and i get that take the the, hey this is creepy we shouldn't is you know some people were outright some people just reasonably just reasonably asking is it ethically is it ethical 
to create an an AI that would trick the receptionist. It tries at, to masquerade as human. Right, but is that ethical? I I, I don't think it's. I don't know. I, and also, but I mean, it's, it's such a nuanced argument because for a normal right. person using it, maybe it isn't. But if you have if you have accessibility issues, like you don't speak the language, right. or you have a speech impediment, or you're mute, is it ethical to force someone to disclose that they're using right. an assistant? And what is the difference? What is the difference between using it as an accessibility thing? Yeah. You know, uh, to me, that those ethical questions are not clear cut. You know, but it's it. it And, you know, we're running right up to questions that science fiction writers have been dealing with since the dawn of science fiction. Uh, And I think that's what was off-putting about, at least for me, what was off-putting about the discussion is that Google was sort of treating it as cocky. What Look what we can do with technology. And they didn't exhibit any humanness, any respect, any – they didn't give us any idea that they understood the responsibility of what they were doing. Right. It seems very clear to me that they hadn't really thought about that. Yeah. Uh, And and again – even if the conclusion is that a service like this shouldn't masquerade as human without at least disclosing it up front, like this is a call from the Google, your Google assistant, you know, I'm working on behalf of a client or some, you know, whatever preface they would say to make clear that this is what's going on. Um, the, in the aftermath of that ethical criticism, Google came out with the statement that, "Oh yeah, yeah, we're going to have it. Uh, we're going to have it to disclose itself." But if yeah. they were thinking of that, why would they have added all of these ums and ahs that make it sound human? Right. And if you had any basic, like even basic PR, anyone who's doing a keynote, you go through objection handling. You go yes. segment by segment, and you realize what the reaction will be to each segment as you try to get the best language possible. So either they were completely inept and didn't think about it, or they didn't care. Yeah. I don't know. But put all that aside, put the ethical questions aside. It is damn cool if it yes. works as they're recording shows, which I do believe as time goes on is a bigger and bigger if. But put it aside as to whether it should do that. And maybe it shouldn't. But if the fact that they could do it is amazing, it, yeah. it really is the stuff of science fiction. I mean, it is could be uh, one of the most fundamental technologies of our time. Yeah, it's really a, a very cool thing if it works. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, just to add, to add further to it, like to this whole issue, what happens if something goes wrong? Like you're calling to make a hair appointment. I spoke about this with Steve Aquino on his show, and all of a sudden it books you a perm and a, and a blonde right, right. dye job, and that's not what you want. And should it just, at that point, when it's right. failing, does it have to tell you it's not human? Right. Or, you know, I, I don't know. I just imagine there's so many ways that it could fail. Uh, uh, but anyway, the next day, I don't know what made me go back to it, but I was like, you know, I, sometimes that's how I start the day is I just review, well, what the hell did I write about yesterday? And I thought about it and I watched that segment of the keynote again. And my spidey sense just went nuts. Like as I studied it the second time and stopped, wasn't, you know, no longer was wowed by the humanness of, of the thing. I just actually listened to the details of the call. And I thought, and and the fact that that Sundar Pichai said these are this is a re- actual call to an actual hair salon that you know he emphasized it multiple times that this is these are real calls, uh, and they were just so many red flags to me, like the way that they didn't answer the phone with the name of the establishment, uh, th- like the fact that yeah. the like I. I you know, I don't, I haven't done a survey of a hundred hair salons, but I, you know, there's places that you can just walk into without an appointment. And then there's places where you need an appointment. And when you 
book an appointment, they usually ask like, you know, if there's a particular stylist who yeah. you want, you know, like your reg if you're a regular customer or something like that. Uh, you know, and I'm sure you could say, I'll just take whoever's available, you know, at, at one o'clock on Wednesday. Um, but that, that, that just wasn't brought up in the call, you know, and I just, uh, and then I, I, there was a CNET story. I forget who wrote it, but somebody at CNET got access to this a couple of days before yeah. IO, which is, you know, a very typical PR move for, for tech companies. Uh, Apple, to my knowledge, doesn't do it before keynotes because they're so super secretive about keynotes, but they, they, you know, but the, They'll have sometimes stuff ready see a to wired piece or some right. some big magazine thing. Um, but you know, like uh, Matthew Panzerino recently got just single. Just Matthew yeah. got uh, uh, access to what was it that he got access to the uh, Mac Pro. That's right. That's right. The, yeah. And, and, and the, Infinity War. The man is intolerable. <laughs> <laughs> the Mac Pro and the the Mac Pro team and the Pro Tools team yeah. that has. You know, and he got this scoop on how they've hired actual professional music producers and film editors and are have hired them as contractors to just work right across the hall from like the Final Cut Pro team and the Logic team. And to when they run into a problem to be able to just grab, you know, like an engineer or one of the managers or somebody and say, here, here, this annoys me. Like I click this button. I click this menu and at every time it takes, you know, eight seconds for the menu to finish filling in. And yeah. I click this, I click this menu 30 times a day. Um, you know, that was like an actual example that they came up with and then they figured out what the bottleneck is. And then all of a sudden they made it. So the menu just opens instantly. Yeah. Um, you know, companies do this. They'll, they'll, they'll seed a, an exclusive to somebody. So, so this guy for CNET got an exclusive on duplex uh, a couple of days before IO, but all he got to do was hear recordings. He didn't mm -hmm. get to hear a live call happen. Uh, just really, it, it just seems very strange to me. And I, I realize, I, I mean, it's like, I don't know if you saw my, the, the Twitter debate on this, Yes, but it was, uh, um, so, uh, bifurcated between people who are like, Hmm, you're right. This is a little fishy. I wonder what's going on. And the people who are like, you're nuts. You know, uh, the the thing that the comparison that kept coming up was that I had gone full birther, being a, re <laughs> a, a well. That's a reference to the uh, birthers are the people yeah. who think Barack Obama was not born in the or United the States. Or the flat Earth people. No, that the you know, but that yeah. the people who insisted that he had to show a birth certificate to prove that he wasn't born in Kenya or whatever. Uh, despite but all I mean, the, at the Apple events, they go out of their, like if they showed you face ID on stage, they have working examples backstage and people right. to explain how they work and walk you through it. And you see live, even if you don't get to do it yourself right. all the time, you get to see it done yourself. Right. Uh, you know, and, and, and it, again, I, I wasn't comparing it to Apple at all. It's just, I guess, because that's what I typically write about. Everybody makes it about Apple, especially the Google or Googly yeah. type people who read my stuff. Um, but they're the like, well, readers. <laughs> well, what, you know, what about HomePod? HomePod, you know, where's the two HomePod support? Uh, well, which is actually, but we got out, to but, see that at WWDC. Right. They walked us in the back and they showed right. it. To us. Right. We got to hear it at WWDC. And even when HomePod first shipped earlier this year at the product briefings, you know, and, and, you know, yeah. it, it famously airplay two didn't ship until literally yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> I think, right. <laughs> It's been a long week. It's been a long week. Yes. Um, so yes, HomePod shipped and spent months on the market without any of the AirPlay 2 features, which include 
pairing two of them in stereo or pairing multiple ones throughout a home to yeah. play the same music simultaneously in multiple room, named rooms, you know, and, and being able to tell your dingus to move this song to the dining room or, or whatever. None of those features shipped with HomePod because AirPlay 2 didn't ship. But at the, uh, at the briefing when HomePod shipped, I, you know, and I, I think you did too, yeah. uh, uh, got to, you know, see ones running obviously beta software but like paired in stereo or in multiple rooms and you know could see it in action and could tell siri to play a certain song yep. and and it all worked you know you, i mean again wasn't shipping nobody said it was shipping everybody said this is coming but there were you know everybody who was everybody in the media who got a briefing got to see that it yeah, actually essentially does a live work. demo right yeah it's very strange not to, to play a recording and not have a demo. And, and, and again, there are certain types of demos that don't scale. So self, a perfect example is self-driving car. There's no, they can't yeah. bring a self-driving car on stage at IO and have the car drive around the, <laughs> I mean, I guess I could have it move forward six inches or something, but you know, you can't do like a road test it for an audience of 4,000 IO attendees like that's you know that's why the trusted people in the media exist that somebody who writes you know for whatever website and you know them they have a body of work behind them and they say I got invited to Google's test track or whoever's test track and I got to see this car and it did this and it did that and I was in the back seat and you know this is what happened you know you take that's that's why the media are there you don't just take the company's word for it but somebody gets a demo and gets to report on how it went uh, this duplex thing nobody did it you know and there's still to this uh, as of May 30th to my knowledge that there's still not one person in the media who has seen a seen or heard yeah. a duplex call take place live which really makes me think that something really, really screwed up. A number of mistakes were made in between. Let's put this in the IO keynote, and here's what Sundar is actually going to say. There, I think there were a number of mistakes. My yeah. guess, and is that it doesn't sound nearly as good as the recordings they played. Either longer pauses between segments, either more awkward. Uh, inability to to parse certain questions like do you have a particular stylist in mind or something like that and i i wouldn't even be surprised if the human like audio you know voice quality doesn't sound like the recordings that this was sort of these recordings were sort of uh idealized versions of what they're trying to build and somehow between making them and then sundar getting up on stage it turned into these are actual calls and yeah, no, once they yeah, realized this and, you know, I'm not the only one raising questions. There was a great story at Axios with a bunch yeah. of just just perfect. I love Axios because they just they, they have this style of like just getting right to the point. And if the yes. whole point is only 200 words, it's a 200 word story and there's no padding. But they just had a great list of questions of, you know, you know, just more or less. How do we know that this actually is, is real? Because you guys and said no it's real. Google is answering. Right. Which is the astounding part, because usually yeah, you you talk to the and even if you don't get a statement on the record, you get enough background information yes, to be able to convey right, right. The, like yes, it really is working or no or this. Uh, right. And it's astounding for two reasons because first, like there's this whole trust but verify thing, and Google has enormous credibility with assistants, but they you can't go on stage and show a product that's not real. That's just right. you lose so much credibility. But also, you can't not 
demo it at all for anybody that that, that product is not real unless you've shown right. it to somebody outside the company right and it's like i wrote in my last hopefully last piece on this until something actually ships uh it, it, it as far as i'm concerned you know unless it comes out you know maybe in the next you know week or so uh it it, it i was right it wasn't it wasn't listenable as recorded in in may like if it end up that shipping in some limited means in august that doesn't mean that i was wrong that it wasn't ready in may right like yeah. it's it famously and and people aren't angry about it but back in 2002 there was a new york times story that claimed um that apple was working on an on a cell phone that ran mac os 10 yeah and I wrote uh, it was really one of the first articles at Daring Fireball 2002 was the year I started the site, and I, I, I called it iPhony. <laughs> and I just ex- tried to explain this is what they're describing is impossible. Uh, and then people stumble on that site. Now this is four years before the iPhone. Uh, people stumble on that article, and they're like, you know, usually in good in good cheer, but they're like, wow, you really blew that one. Uh, because it's, you know what they're describing does sound a lot like the iPhone. It's a cell phone that runs a, some, a modified version of OS X. Um, but I wasn't wrong. In 2002, it literally was impossible to yeah. get Mac OS X. Ba- Mac OS X barely ran on piece <laughs> on Macs in 2002, yep. right? It was it was barely running on Macs. That was pre Lobot, pre Purple, pre everything. Right, like, and it 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 was a technical miracle that it ran in 2006, uh, you know, or 2007, yeah. I guess when it actually <laughs> shipped, like it was like the uh, unbelievable feats of hardware and software engineering to get it working the way it was in 2006 and 2002 arm hardware and mobile GPUs and right. display technology. None of it was there. Like just because it happened four years later, doesn't mean that I wasn't right in 2002. And I feel no, like the same absolutely. thing is going to happen with this Google assistant where again, I don't dispute that among all companies or, or, you know, it, it include uh, a university AI, you know, labs and stuff like that, that if anybody's close to getting a, a, a vocal assistant that can do this, I, I would bet on Google. There's no doubt in my mind. I think you'd be a fool not to make them the odds on favorite to get something like this working first. Uh, like it, that's where it's so exasperating. Where it felt like, uh, you know, there would be people on Twitter t- telling me that I, I, I'm just bent out of shape because yeah. Siri is so far behind. I, you know, I don't understand how far ahead Google Assistant is. It's like, no, nah, that has nothing to do with it. I just smell a fishy demo. There was a whole feeling about that show. They mentioned the word AI so often that they thought we were afraid. Like it felt like they were afraid we were going to forget that AI existed. And the entire thing was so cocky and so so full of hubris that they were just. It, it felt like we want to show off our technology. We want to show that we're the leaders. And that's not what these things should be about. At least in my yeah. opinion, they yeah. should be about like again, like the responsibility that comes with these yeah. things. I think that's the gist of why we felt uncomfortable with it. Well, and think about it this way too. And in terms of how would they get there? How you know if you're thinking like I am, like that they probably made some kind of catastrophic not catastrophic but a terrible mistake in terms of overselling where they were and like one way to think about it is just which tense verb do you use you know yeah. like you know nobody was saying in february homepod includes do present tense includes support for stereo pairing yeah everybody wrote it in the future tense that apple says it will ship an update later this year to enable 
dual speakers. Whereas the headlines for this duplex thing, I have I cited a whole bunch of examples, yep. and I don't blame them. I I kind of got hooked into that present tense on day one, where I just kind of trusted Google. But they're all written in the present tense. Google Assistant can now make phone calls, yep. you know, to p- make appointments for you. Uh, and that's I, I really think that's wrong. They didn't show that, and I think it makes a difference. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, Air Power still hasn't shipped, but they were sitting there right. on the on the on the tables when we went backstage. Right, and you could and you could pick up the phone yep. and see that it stopped charging and put it back yep. down and see that it started charging and p- pick up their their sample watch that yep. was on it and you know it, it was there for us to play with and you know again it was obviously a prototype, uh, yep. but they had prototypes that you know and again I didn't have a stopwatch to see you know. How fast it charged, I don't know, but I mean, at least in terms of what you could do in five minutes of hands-on time, it was yeah. it was there to play with. All right, enough on that. Let me let me take another break here and thank our good friends, such good friends, longtime sponsors of the show, Squarespace. Look, Squarespace is your all-in-one place to make a website. Right, you can register the domain. You pick from a whole bunch of really beautiful templates. They're customizable out the wazoo, so you can do this if you're. You know, let's say you're not a web uh, developer. You don't really have those chops at all, but you are a designer. You know how to make logos. You know how to pick colors. You know how to pick fonts and stuff like that. And you you know how to you're, you're a graphic designer. Uh, you can use Squarespace to make a a branded website that fits with the design that you want. And and again, they have templates to get you started, but you're not like locked into them where your site is going to end up looking exactly like one of these templates. You can customize it out the wazoo. There are so many websites that you encounter on a daily basis that are made with Squarespace and you'd never know it unless you look at the do view source and start looking to see whether stuff is being served from the Squarespace domain. It's really amazing. You know, a ton of my favorite restaurant sites in particular notoriously used to be terrible. I mean, you know, like it was a joke, but it was actually true. Where you, you go to a wet restaurant website and you couldn't, they wouldn't even have like the hours listed. It's, it's nuts. When you go to a restaurant website and it's actually like a nice website, looks good, loads fast, has all the stuff you'd want, I swear, I, at least two out of three times, you view source, it's a Squarespace site. It, it, you're encountering Squarespace sites all the time. And the reason why is it's, it's so much easier than doing it by hand. And they take care of all the technical stuff, the actual hosting, the making sure it's reliable, providing uh, great analytics in a simple, it, it just like everything else at Squarespace, the presentation of the analytics you get from a Squarespace site, uh, where people are going, where they're getting to your site from. It's all beautiful, really logically designed reports, uh, I can't recommend it enough. And it means that you don't have to worry about any of those details. So if you are running a restaurant or you're setting up something for, uh, you know, your kid's little league team or your, your church or something like that, you, you don't have to worry about the technical aspects. You don't waste time with stuff that you're, shouldn't be wasting time on really, really can't recommend enough that the next time you need to make a new website or somebody, you know, comes to you for help making a website, Push them to Squarespace first and see how far you can go. I, I, you're probably going to stay there. Uh, so make your next move. Get your own unique domain and create a beautiful website at Squarespace. And you can start a free trial today at squarespace.com slash talk show. Squarespace.com slash talk show. You get a free trial. And when you do decide to sign up and start paying, use that same URL, squarespace.com slash talk show. And the offer code talk show, once again, no the, just talk show. That'll get you 10% off 
your first purchase. You can prepay for a whole year, save 10%. It's like getting a couple of months free. So my thanks to Squarespace for their continuing support of the talk show. Uh, do you see this thing where there was motherboard got some court documents on the iPhone yeah. six bend gate and the story, the headline they use internal documents show Apple knew the iPhone six would bend. Um, which I mean, I didn't, I, I wasn't a huge fan of how the story got covered. Like my understanding is Apple has this materials department and they understand materials. So for example, when they moved from the aluminum iPhone to the plastic iPhone 2G, they knew that plastic was more likely to crack, but it had some right. benefits over aluminum for them. Then when they moved to glass, they knew that glass was more likely to break, but there were benefits to moving right. to glass anyway. Same thing when they moved from the iPhone 5, uh, the iPhone 5 design, which had the, I forget if it was aluminum or stainless steel band on it. And the and the aluminum back, they knew that the larger surface and the the lack of the frame was going to allow it to bend more because physics. They they knew these things, but there were trade offs that they thought were important to make. And over the course of the iPhone six life lifespan, when they had millions of people using it, they found out exactly where those issues were. And just like they made every product, like the iPhone eight glass is way better than the iPhone four S glass. The iPhone 6S uh, aluminum frame is way better than the 6. So it's like they knew because yeah. they understand material sciences, but this made it sound very cons- conspiratorial. Right. It makes it sound conspiratorial. And the problem starts right in the headline where it says Apple knew the iPhone 6 would bend. Well, everything can bend. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, I like mean, ceramics shatters, right? Apple- <laughs> right. Um, Every material the, has a the problem. The problem is that you need to say relative to what? And the article does then go on to say that it bends more easily than the iPhone 5S, which is the model it was replacing at the top of the product line. Well, duh, it's, it, of course it bends more easily than the 5S. I mean, we know that, right? We know that from all the videos. Like you can, a, a strong person can take an iPhone 6 or at least the ones that shipped originally. And if they really try hard, they could bend it with their own hands. And an iPhone 5S doesn't bend like that. Of course it bends more easily than a 5S. It's bigger, has a, bigger surface area. Yeah. Um, the, 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 com- <laughs> the comparison isn't, does it bend more easily than the five S it's the comparison is, does it bend too easily to have shipped as the design? Yes. That's the question. And it's not answered at all in these documents. And yeah. I would say that the fact that the iPhone six remained in the product line until last year would suggest that it was fine. It was, you know, it, obviously a, 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 a con to the new design, but not catastrophic, uh, you know. Yeah, and again, n- like the iPhone, the iPhone 3G cracked. It would cra- the plastic right. would crack along the buttons. Yeah. The iPhone 4 had the antenna issues, and Apple kept that in the lineup after the 4S. All, all right. of design is compromised. Right. Material science is compromised, and this is a normal process right. of development for a product. Uh, there is now there is the case that they did somewhat at some point in the iPhone 6's product lifespan. They did alter it with some kind of reinforcement yes. at the bend point. Um, but I believe, I, I think that anybody who had problems up until that point, if it was still under warranty, could get it replaced, yeah. I believe, right? I, I, yeah. I think it was covered. I believe so. I mean... Yeah. I, and if not, Apple's then that's usually... a, 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 I guess that's a problem, but I, I believe it was covered. Yeah, Apple is usually pretty good. Like they have, and this is the same thing with the keyboard issue. They have internal metrics, and when something becomes an issue, it's an automatic alert, and then people have to make a decision about it. Right. Um, but it has to reach that level. Apple is just too big a company. 
sad to say this, but like 1% of Apple users is a huge amount of people. But if an issue fluctuates 1% to 2 to 3% right. within a product lifestyle, that's not exploding phones. You know, like some, there's always some battery failure in every phone. It's when it's catastrophic that it becomes a problem. Yeah. Uh, the iPhone 4 antenna gate is my favorite example of that because it's like the tech press, you know, became, you know, it was like blood in the water, uh, a bunch of, you know, sharks attacking it. I mean, the extraordinary, you know, they truly extraordinary in hindsight that Apple held the special press event just to address antenna gate. I mean, uh, I they mean, had to because antenna gate was, it was reproducible. Like you could take any iPhone 4 and reproduce uh, attenuation, it didn't affect everybody because it would only lower the signal by a right. certain amount. And if you had a good signal, you didn't even notice it. But if right. you were barely online, you could use it as a play pause button. All right. It's a, it's a, to me, it's a casebook example of how to handle a PR crisis, right? Yeah. It's take your time, get your ducks in a row, but then get out in front of it, as far out in front of it as you can. But the thing in hindsight that to me proves that it wasn't really a catastrophic or scandalous problem is that the iPhone 4 was the uh, the top of the line iPhone for a longer stretch of time without any alteration to the antenna yeah. design for than any other phone because it was the last one that shipped in late June and then the iPhone 4S was the first one that shipped in the fall and I think even that one though was late and shipped in October yes um so it was the top-selling iPhone for like sixteen or seventeen and it stayed months. Stayed on the market for years, especially and, in and then in stayed on the markets. market for years yeah. afterwards as a lower-priced option in the line with a completely undes- un- <laughs> unchanged antenna design. Now, yes, yeah. they did change that style of antenna design, starting with the Verizon iPhone yes. four that came out, uh, you know, like six months off cycle. And then they used that Verizon style and antenna with the 4S and that was better. And it's, you know, to me, very much analogous to the way that the iPhone 6S used a higher grade air, yes. you know, aluminum than the iPhone 6. That's just progress, you know? Yeah. yeah. But it was it was it bad enough that it never should have shipped in the first place? No. Yeah. But at the same token, if, if 100%, if you could show keyboard failure at 100% level, like you could go to an Apple store and make any Apple keyboard fail, or you could go to an Apple store and make every iPhone 6 bend, you'd have to treat it similarly. But these things have so so few instances compared to something like the like the antenna uh, issue that you, you just can't hold them in the same yeah. sphere. Uh, all right, let's move on. Apple accepts, then rejects Valve's yeah. Steam Link app boy this is a weird story yes because it's not like uh, you know like you know me and you decide to make an app and we're indie developers and we have a rejection problem over questionable grounds um you know which is bad enough and it's often you know something that we'll write about uh or talk about or whatever but this is steam this is not our valve you know this (laughs) this is not like a little indie developer this is uh uh a, a, a huge game developer. Probably a, one of the most important game developers in the world. Right. And they don't interact with Apple the way that indie developers interact with Apple through the black hole of the yeah. iTunes submission thing. And both sides are pros. You know, you know, Valve is so far, at least publicly, is taking this with a stiff upper lip. Um, 
uh, in, but in they did make their, it public. They did bring uh, the negotiations public. Well, they had to though. They yeah. had to because the part that's so weird is it, it. It seems clear. I don't. This isn't fair, but it seems clear that that they had been in contact with Apple in advance while they were yeah. working on bringing Steam Link. And and just I, I'm not an expert on these things, but basically my understanding is that Steam Link is like VNC for gaming. Yeah. So if you have a Mac or PC in your house with steam installed and steam is like a netflix for video games type thing where except you can buy but you know you can go there you can pub it's like their own little app store for games for yes. pc games um very well respected company people love it there's all sorts of cool indie games that are on steam um it, it's a great service steam link is a way you have your you have your mac or pc somewhere in your on your land in your house with steam installed you put steam link on your iphone and now you can play these games and i guess where it would really be cool would be on apple tv where you could use a controller um but then you you can play these games over your and it just streams over your wi-fi um and you can't do it outside your house you can't like go to you know three blocks away and then get on cellular and do it from anywhere it's not streaming from valve's servers um it's only a way to connect to the thing that's already in your house when you're in your house. It seems pretty clear that somebody, some connections at some levels, Valve and Apple were in communication on this in advance. Then they finished and submitted it, and it was accepted. And that's when Valve announced it. And then the next yeah. day, it's... It, you know, see again. We don't know this, but it seems pretty clear that some other. You know, it was like the left hand at Apple was like, "Yeah, yeah, this is great. Can't wait to have it. We'll promote it. We've got a. You know, we've probably had like an App Store promotion ready to go." Uh, and then the right hand was like, uh, "What is this?" And then it yep. got canceled. And I kind of feel like Apple's in the wrong on this one. I get it. I, and again, this isn't about whether they should be uh, protecting the, the App Store's thirty percent you know, revenue share for any kind of in-app purchase in general. Let's just, let's just say for the sake of argument that we all agree that that's fine and it's a good business practice and, and, you know, Apple is well warranted to protect it. Uh, I don't think this is that, I don't think this is an end around the app stores, 30, 70 split. Yeah. It's super interesting to me. You famously, when uh, in-app purchases were first came out, you couldn't do it with free apps because Apple didn't want an end run around the app store. They thought maybe uh, paranoid or maybe not that the minute the you, you could put you could make transactions outside the app store, everyone would make a free app. They would have their own uh, yeah. commerce running on the back end. And Apple would essentially be maintaining the world's largest free app store for no money. And right. Apple doesn't operate things at a loss. Right. So then when they did make it free, uh, apps could use in-app purchases. They said you can't run your own store because, again, they knew that everyone would just make a, right. a placeholder app and do all their commerce. This has some slight flavor to that because you can go and buy all your games on Steam and then play them on iPhone. And games is by far the biggest revenue generator right. for uh, the App Store. But I think with Apple, it's it's not always about money. It's It's about control of the platform. And the only thing I can see with this is that they don't want to cede control of iPhone gaming to Valve. And you know, in you a paranoid world, this might be that. It, it, games might be number one overall, but I did look... Yeah, I was curious the other day, and I looked at the top grossing, which you, you can't get to on the iPhone anymore, as far as I can tell. They don't. They have top paid apps and top free apps on the iPhone app store, but they don't list top grossing anymore. Yeah. Um, but they still do have it in like on the website and, I guess, in iTunes. Um and I thought it was pretty interesting in the top five. And this is related to something Ben Thompson and I were talking about, which is that these pay-to-play games like Candy Crush are 
you know, kind of a ethically questionable territory. Yeah, it's a casino like, game. Yeah, it's like a casino game. Uh, and it's kind of off-brand for Apple to to be involved in that to any degree. And uh, my analogy to that would be like uh, you go on a, uh, a cruise ship uh, and, they, you know, they usually have a – almost always have a casino somewhere on board the ship because once you're in international waters, you know, there's yeah. no laws and, you know – I don't know if you've ever heard this, but casinos can be rather profitable for the casino owner. Uh, The Disney Cruise Line does not have casinos. Yes. Um, Not because it's not profitable, but because I I believe that they've, you know, they've concluded probably correctly that it's too off brand for them, for their, their, the Disney brand. Um, I, I, you know, but anyway, I looked at the top grossing apps and number one was Netflix, um, uh, Hulu was like five and uh, Pandora was three. So yeah, subscriptions. three of the top five. And again, I don't know how that goes with the long tail. You know, I, I bet the long tail has a lot more games than st- streaming services. Like, you know, there just aren't that many streaming services like Netflix and Pandora and, and Hulu. Um, but I thought that was a pretty good sign in terms of there's a source of revenue where there's no moral qualms about it. Right. When you pay 10 bucks or 12 bucks a month for Netflix and you get Netflix, that's a fair deal. You're, yep. you, you knew exactly what you're getting into. You're not getting uh, badgered, uh, uh, you know, give us another dollar and we'll, we'll take out the commercial, you know, uh, you're getting what you paid for. So anyway, I'm What's not quite thing? sure. It's, we, they, they figured out early on in the app store, not they, I mean, uh, game developers, that people would not pay $10 for a game. They wouldn't even pay $5 for a game, but they would pay 50 to to $100 to have a better farm than their friends. They lord it <laughs> over them or to get their car back on the, on the track right. faster because they were bored. We will pay for ego gratification and right. uh, instant gratification, and that's the best way to separate a human yep. being from their money. And everyone has gone all in on this, and it's yep. led to the detriment of the gaming industry. Yep. But to your point, yeah, Disney does not have casinos. Usually profitable does not have them. Uh, and there's an argument to be made that Apple could run an app store that's very different than this, just by policy decisions alone. Right. Um, but the to the previous thing, the, this whole thing with, with Valve is so bizarre because you have Phil Schiller commenting on it now, saying that they're discussing it with Valve and they're working on problems in the app store. And I like, I, I like to give Apple, not the benefit of the doubt, but I like to assume that I don't know everything. Like Famously, right. everyone got super upset when Apple banned a popular app from the app store, and it turned out that that developer had a ton of shady stuff going right, on right. as well. And we just all thought Apple was guilty immediately right. until all of that came out. So I don't, you, you never know if there's like a privacy concern or a security right. risk or something like the V VPN connection isn't secure and they want to work on it. Yeah. The, I just don't know here, but I'd like to find out what's the happening. The Schiller thing came in an email to, a, you know, Joe Random customer who just wrote yeah. to Schiller knowing that he's, you know, the the direct, you know, the app store, the buck stops with him yes. with the app store. Um you know, and and when people like Phil Schiller write back to somebody like that, they know there's a chance that the guy's going to yes. turn around. And he actually sent it to me too. I didn't realize till yesterday because I was catching up on email. But he sent it to me. He sent it to Mac Rumors. Uh, I, I don't. You know, I, I wouldn't do that personally. But I, I, it's clear from the way Schiller wrote the email, he knew that I could leak. Yeah. Uh, and it, you know, written very carefully. There's nothing embarrassing. I thought it was interesting that he listed user generated content as a problem. Yeah. And I don't know enough about Steam. I don't know if they've got like games where you get to dress up as a Nazi or, or you know, or I, adult I, content or something. Yeah, or something like that. I, 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 I but that user generated content, I, you know, it sounds like it might be a little bit more than just hey, we think it's an end around the seventy thirty split. 
Well, there's been there's been issues with apps that include uh, discussion groups previously. Hmm. Like it's interesting because Apple has Safari, and you can get anything in the world on Safari. But when it comes to the App Store, even embedding web views for a while was controversial. They wanted you to put yeah. that 18 and over sticker on it, and then it was discussion groups. You know what, what was yeah. the content of the discussion groups? So it seems like that's something they still wrestle with. Yeah. All right, let me take a third and final break here. Thank our uh, our third sponsor. What this is really a trifecta of great sponsors on this episode. This one it's for Eero. Now, Eero is um, a, a Wi-Fi system for consumers that lets you build out what's called a mesh network. And that basically, you've probably heard about this, uh, but you get like a couple of pieces of hardware. They're all about little, little puck-sized things about the size of an Apple TV, the main ones. And you put a couple of them throughout your house and and their website will make it clear. You give it the square footage or you know how many floors you have or something like that. And you, they'll help you decide how many you might need. Um, you set up one of them is the main one that connects to like your cable modem or your files connection or whatever, but it's the same. It doesn't matter which one you pick. It's the same hardware. And then the other ones in the house, they just talk to each other and they create one network. So it's not like you've got like three, if you've got three of them that you have three networks and your phone has to be ready to switch from one network to another. The way these mesh networks work is three devices work together to create the illusion of one network that your devices use. And it could just fill your house with really solid Wi-Fi. There is no way in my current house that one base station could ever, uh, it's, 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 it's a row home in Philly and it just goes up and it just signals don't go through floors very well. Um, there's just no way that one base station would, uh, would work. It just wouldn't. Uh, so we've switched to Eero a while ago. Apple's out of the base station game now. Um, I, I really can't think of a better one than Eero to recommend. I mean, I know they're the sponsor. I'm getting paid to tell you this, but I'm telling you, I, even if they weren't, it's what I would tell you to look at first. You set it up with a, fa- a really nice iPhone app. They have an Eero iPhone app. You manage the network with it, but you don't feel like you're like a junior network engineer. It really is a setup process that an Apple user would appreciate. Uh, you're not typing in weird 192.168 IP addresses to log into a skanky web server running on the thing. It's a really nice app. You can name the devices, tell them which room they're in. All very graphical. Um, you could even run like a speed test, see what type of performance you're getting right within the app. Um, and the second generation products that Eero has uh, include something called the Eero Beacon. It's half the size of the regular Eero base station, which is already pretty small, but it's even more, it's half the size and you can simply plug it into a wall outlet to expand coverage into any room. So if you just need a little oomph just to get to like the fourth floor of your house or something like that, you can just add as many of these beacons as you want. If there's an outlet, there's Wi-Fi. Um, And since the Beacon doesn't have an Ethernet port, uh, you do need at least one regular Eero to connect at the modem. But other than that, you could just use these beacons. And they're even included. You think it sounds like a nightlight. You just put it in a socket. Well, guess what? They have an LED nightlight in the device. So you could use it as a nightlight. And, of course, if you don't want to, you can turn it off very easily right in the app. They even have an ambient light sensor, though. So that if you want to use it, it'll just intelligently adjust the brightness automatically depending on the time of day and how much light there actually is in the room where you have it. Just a great idea. Really a great way to go. You know, the second generation is such a great upgrade in terms of just being easy and small and and convenient. Um, Really uh, love this product. Love the company. 
uh, very happy customer, me. Um, they even have incredible customer support. So if you do need help, and you probably won't, but you can uh, get a hold of a Wi-Fi expert in 30 seconds or less most times of the day. Um, I have one running right now. I'm talking to Renee over Nero Wi-Fi network. Um, really recommend it. So here's the deal. Their code is the talk show. They have the the. Um, so what you do is go to Eero.com. Remember that code, the talk show. And you can get free overnight shipping to the U.S. or Canada. Hello, Renee. Uh, just visit Eero.com and at checkout, select overnight shipping and enter that promo code, the talk show, and you'll get the shipping for free. So you, overnight, you'll have it tomorrow. Listening to whatever day of the week you're listening to me right now, you could have an Eero network in your house tomorrow with free shipping. So my thanks to, to Eero. Mine actually just arrived yesterday. I haven't set it up yet, but the box came yesterday. <sighs> it's, isn't it nice? It's a nice packaging, too. Yeah, it's beautiful. Looking uh, forward to it. Uh, really, it's great stuff. I was just looking at it the other day in my, in my bedroom, and I was like, you know how you know this is nice? Is that my wife doesn't complain that we have a Wi-Fi base station in our bedroom. <laughs> well, we were, uh, we were just talking about it after Apple discontinued the airport line. Like, which company do you trust? Because this is your data. It's your data on the front line of the Internet. And there's a lot of companies whose business is predicated on the collection and um, uh, use of your data, yeah. you know, to put it delicately. Uh, and Apple was a company that you could trust. They didn't care what data you had. And it was hard finding another company like that. But yeah. Euro is so former Apple engineer and, and Apple's mindset centric yeah. that it was an easy choice. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, before we move on to WWDC rumors, uh, of which there's not a lot to talk about, really, which is kind of exciting. Uh, iOS 11.4 and AirPlay 2 shipped yesterday. And finally, I think this is truly an unironic finally. Uh, but in my practice so far, I like we have two HomePods in the house. I moved the one, you know, from the bedroom down into the kitchen. So we have two in the kitchen to play with the stereo. Uh, everything works exactly as it says on the tin. It was just as easy to set up a stereo pair as Apple had promised, even with one that had already been configured in another room. Once I yep. got the software update on the HomePod, it immediately prompted me, hey, I see you're in the same room as the other HomePod. Do you want to set them up as a stereo pair? And I was like, yes. And then I <laughs> immediately said, play whatever. And whatever immediately started playing in stereo on the two devices. I, I, I cannot imagine how it could be easier to set them up. I, I really can't because if it was any more automatic, it might do it when you didn't want it to. And like, you can go in and tweak it. Like you can go in and switch the left and right and, and make them say tones to test. And yes, you can yeah. do all that. But the automatic setup is amazing. Yeah, the automatic setup is amazing. Uh, you know, it's a shame it took as long as it did, but it, apparently they wanted to get it right. And I have to say, day one, it, it works seamlessly. I mean, it's exactly as promised. The, the interesting thing is they made a conscious decision to have Siri only respond from one of them. So by default, yes. the left channel will be the one that yeah. has Siri. You can change it. Like when you ask Siri something, you can... The, the docs, I think, say you hold down on it and it'll switch. I couldn't get that to work. But if I went to the right um, HomePod and I said, T turn on Siri, it would switch Siri to there and stay there. So you can move it back and forth. But I the, thought that was an interesting choice. Uh, I, the way I, it, it is interesting that they don't both talk at once. I can see why. Um, and it seems like it's a little smarter than that. It seems like in, in, in uh, uh, like when I, I was up in New York yesterday for a, a demo of this, um, and they had it set up like on two ends of a, of a, yeah. of a table against a wall, which I think is a very typical distance for stereo speakers in my kitchen. I set them up on different sides of the room. 
And it seems to me, whichever one I'm facing is the one that answers me, which makes sense. Like, cause I'm not, I can't face both of them at the same time. So if I turn around and look at the one that doesn't seem to answer by default when I'm in a neutral physical position, it, that's the one that answers me though, because my voice is coming right at it. You that's know? interesting. So when I pair, as far as I know, once you pair them, it just picks one, but it does use this, the microphone system from both of them all yes. the time to make yeah. sure it hears you. Yeah. Well, try putting them on opposite sides of a room okay. and I suspect you'll, you'll see that. I think it's just that if you're, if your voice is coming at both of them, more or less like from an equilateral, uh, equilateral triangle position, there is a default one that always seems to answer. Yeah. I like it. Some of it is just so cool. Like you, you can do it with Apple TV, you can do it with iPhone, but then you put them in other rooms uh, and you can just say, play whatever song in the bedroom or play this song in the living room. Yeah. And it just, I mean, like to, to people who are not Apple people who've been doing this with uh, Amazon or Google forever, they're laughing. Right. But there's something about having it so deeply embedded in the Apple ecosystem and the way that Apple handles interface that makes it just a very fluid experience. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't have a lot of time, so I'm not going to go on sure. with it more, but uh, I like it. Yeah, me too. Um, WWDC rumors, or lack thereof, is my heading in the show notes. They doubled down. So who knows? You know, the stuff is the closer we get, the more likely stuff is to leak because it's just the nature of the game that they, you know, rehearsals and who and marketing material start getting finalized and more people are exposed to it. And, you know, it's no coincidence that, like, in the 48 hours before a keynote, there's often last minute leaks. Which is, I think, attributable simply to the fact that people who are less invested in it are suddenly have access to it and you know are willing to spoil the surprise. But we'll see. You know, Apple famously is as uh, you know issued that report earlier this year about leaking and how many leakers they've caught and like <laughs> fired. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we'll see. I don't know. I'm really hopeful, though, that not much more will leak because uh, I think this is more exciting. I think it's way more exciting to like kind of not even to know what's coming. I mean, do I, I mean, there's I don't know if there, we know anything. There's two sorts of leaks. Like there are leaks when something is doing something wrong and you, it needs to get out like people who are whistleblowers and stuff like that. But this is always more like spoilers. Right. Do I want to read the plot to the next Marvel movie or the next uh, Star Wars movie and then go see it and think the whole thing is boring so I already know it? No, I really don't. I have to monitor these things because it's my job. But if I didn't have to do this, I wouldn't want to know anything about the show. I'd want to go in there and really enjoy the hell out of it. So I'm kind of happy when stuff doesn't leak because it makes the show more exciting for me. Yeah. Uh, I wrote something this week or that Koi Vin friend of the show yeah. had a really nice article about the il custom illustration work that they're doing in the app store. And that he, you know, had when I first, this is with the, the iOS 11 app store that debuted last year. Um, and it, effectively they're running it as a, like a periodical they have, you know, there, there's a, I, I don't know if, I don't think I know anybody in particular who's on that team, but I know that they've hired people from actual magazines, you know, yeah. people who worked at like Cone Nast and, and other really high end design magazines. It's run as a real editorial operation and they have, I don't know if they're on staff or if they're all contract work, but they hire, you know, pay real illustrators to do real custom illustrations to, to uh, accompany the articles that they write. And it's really nice. And it's, you know, as Koi says in this world, it's so many people just go right to clip art instead of commissioning original artwork. It's nice to see somebody do that. And I just wrote offhandedly that one of the things I'm looking forward to at WWDC is seeing that, you know, the iOS app store 2.0 yeah. come to the Mac and somebody, I think it was like nine to five Mac is like, 
oh, maybe Gruber knows something that we don't know. Um, you know, he often <laughs> coyly drops them <laughs> like that. I This isn't a, a secret. I don't know if it's coming this year. I don't. But it 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 was on my show last year where I asked Phil Schiller about it. And he just said, we thought it was the right thing to do to bring it to iOS first. But yeah. we're invested in the Mac App Store. It's important to us. Uh, you know, he didn't say it'll come next year, but he said, you know, he, he very strongly suggested that it will come. This sort of thinking will come to the Mac App Store. So I, I thought I thought it was almost understood because during the briefings yeah. last year, we asked, I think everybody asked about it and they said that it was being worked on. Right. And it, it feels like a this year thing. Right. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, I mean, like this isn't like a deep, dark, secret little birdie. This was Phil Schiller on stage at a public event, uh, strongly insinuating that they were already at work on the Mac one. And they're doing all of them. Like the bookstore is getting right. every store is going to get this makeover. Right. And, and you know, and, and I completely agree with him. I think it's very obvious that it was very, you know, it's the biggest and most important store. store so, of course, the iOS yeah. one got got the treatment first. Um you know, but there's so that's something I expect next week. I mean, I wouldn't be yeah. surprised if maybe it's more than the Mac App Store. Maybe there is a new bookstore yeah. and other stuff. Uh, what else? There's rumors about a Beats branded Siri speaker, sort of like a little brother to the HomePod that would come at a lower price. Yeah, I guess the same way that the uh, W1 chip went into Beats products and made AirPod yeah. equivalents, there'll, there'll be some Beats equivalent of the HomePod. Right. Uh, there's the, 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 the thing from months ago that Mark Gurman called Marzipan, which he, yeah. he says was, is some sort of secret effort to get iPhone apps running on the Mac. And there were certain people who got very excited about this. I don't believe, A, I don't believe that's coming next week and B, I don't, <laughs> I don't believe it actually is a way to get iOS apps running on the Mac. It, at least it, you know, I, I think it's more of like a cross-platform UI toolkit that would help you share code and components between Mac apps and iOS apps. But I don't think it's like, boom, here's your iOS app running on the Mac with a recompile in Xcode or something like that. Uh, My understanding is that since Apple did that reorg, they've they've had this problem. Like the iMessage team has to build iMessage for iOS and iMessage for app. And they, across the company, they've built new and undisclosed tools that right. helps them do all this. And they're going to pick one. I don't think it's ready for this year either, but they're going to pick the ones that are best yeah. and write them as public tools, yeah. not internal tools, yeah. which are often, you know, see to your pants stuff. And then we'll get this. But there's several interplaying projects. Yeah, there. I've been talking. Yeah, at bottom line is that Apple's, uh, you know, you'd think that they would have internalized this by now, but Apple, when when they're when they ship the stuff that they actually use themselves, it's the best developer stuff that they ship. Yeah. And when they ship stuff that's like good enough for you people, but we don't use it, <laughs> it's it, it it's buggy, including frameworks. It's buggy and incomplete. You know, yeah. uh, you know, the yeah. best example I could think of, or just well, maybe it's not the best example, but a simple example is that a year after the iPhone shipped and the App Store came, you know, was announced, you know, in February or whatever, and by the time the one-year anniversary rolled around, they opened the App Store and developers had had three or four months. The, you know, the, the App Store, you know, the, eight, the public APIs for writing iPhone apps in 2008, right away, it didn't include everything Apple could do because obviously Apple has to write the system-level software yeah. that, that operates at the lowest levels. Um, 
But for the most part, though, it gave third-party developers ability to write apps as good as Apple's apps, and that you know, maybe a lot of maybe some of Apple's apps were written completely within the API limitations of the public APIs. Um, compare and contrast with the original Apple Watch, where the original Watch Kit wasn't really native at all, but all the yeah. apps that Apple had on the watch were native. And so you'd at launch one of Apple's apps on the watch and it would open up and you could use it. And you'd launch a third party app and you, it would spin for 30 or 40 seconds and maybe open. But I mean, iOS, t- uh, iPhone OS 2, that was a complete, like, Henri Lamoureux's team had to do a second forced march, basically. And I think Scott Forstall wrote scroll and table, and they had to rewrite UI scroll right. and UI table and make them public. They were in no shape for public right. at first. Right. So the thing I've heard from a few developer friends about this cross-platform UI tool- toolkit, whatever it's called, um, is that they hope. It's something that Apple themselves are using because there's a good chance then it'll be good. And they really hope it is not a, well, we don't use this, but you dummies who want uh, shared UI code between two platforms can, here you go. It's my understanding that there's a bunch of stuff Apple's using that that they're going to sort of rewrite for public consumption over the next year or two. Uh other than that, man, what what the hell else is coming? I guess the hardware is confusing to me because like there was rumors of the new MacBook Air, but that sounds like it was pushed off. There were rumors yeah. of the new iPad Pros, but there've been zero leaks and usually there are right. some hardware leaks from right. from the supply chain. Right. And the curious thing if they don't do iPad Pros is then presumably the next time it could happen would be September. Typically yeah. Apple these days they used to sometimes have August events, but they don't haven't in years. Um, and even then those were like software, like for iLife apps or something. Um, so if they don't do it at WWDC, then they're pushed back to September. And that would mean that the iPad pro either skips an entire generation of a, what are we up to? A 11 processors, uh, and goes right to the a 12 or the iPad pro gets the a 11 an entire year late and remains a year behind CPU wise, you know, the, the iPhone, whatever comes after the iPhone 10 and eight. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. just and the curious and the Macs are, are a huge question mark now because Intel is just having the worst ever since they went to 14 nanometer. They've had the worst time. They went from TikTok, TikTok to TikTok, optimize, optimize, optimize. And I've talked about this before, but every time I fall asleep, I'm afraid I'm going to wake up and they will have sandwiched another lake in right. between Coffee Lake and Cannon Lake. So they've been the, a lot of the Mac delays we've seen lately are entirely because Intel hasn't had the chips ready. Right. And I don't know if the Coffee Lake Mac chips are ready at this right. point. And insert, uh, we don't have time to go on a long yeah. tangent about the hypothetical move to arm for the Mac, yeah. except to just say that at a certain level, uh, you can wave your hands over some of the technical complexities. It certainly would make sense for the MacBook. Yes. Uh, it, the MacBook would actually get a performance bump, I, I think. Yes, my guess absolutely. is that a MacBook running an Apple A12 processor or even an A11 processor would get a nice performance boost across the board. Um, the problem would be that there's uh, there's no known ARM chips that compete with Intel at the high end for, let's yeah. just say, the iMac Pro, the Mac Pro, it, devices that Apple has publicly recommitted to very recently. So it's not like the story is, well, they're getting out of the pro hardware game. Uh, in theory, Apple's chip team could have secretly been working on ARM-based chips that actually do compete at the highest levels of performance. Uh, but that would be shocking. I mean, it would be great news. It'd be terribly exciting, but it would be a thunderbolt out of the sky in terms of being uh, shaking up the industry. And and just to, to put a little bow on it, I think it would be really difficult for Apple to move 
to ARM without moving the entire platform to ARM. I think it could also be super interesting if the MacBook and maybe sort of an Apple TV Mac mini hybrid were running purely on ARM, if the intermediary devices were fusion cores where you had ARM cores for um for for, for uh, power efficiency and you still had legacy Intel cores for compatibility mm. and performance and on the high end they stay at Xeon because if there's one right. area that Intel is investing in it's still the Xeon chips right. uh, yeah so it's possible that they have something it would be terribly exciting but again there's no there's no leaks about it I mean it's all yeah. just spike it's just <laughs> podcasters I love saying, it <laughs> it's just <laughs> podcasters and Twitter users saying well maybe they'll switch to ARM <laughs> yeah no I mean they've had like the same way they had Intel uh, Mac They've had Intel Macs in the closet for years. They've had ARM oh, Macs definitely. in the closet for years. It just depends. Yeah. They hold them over Intel's head to say, what, yeah. you guys aren't done yet? But actually shipping it, it raises a lot of de- uh, implementation questions. Right. And every other time that they've switched from 68K to PowerPC and then from yeah. PowerPC to Intel, there was like a one-year transition period. And then after that year transition tra- transition period everything was running the new platform yeah it just and again they could do it you know it doesn't have to go that way but for a bunch of reasons that we just don't have time to expand upon in detail it just makes a lot more sense though that if you're going to move you move the entire platform from top to bottom so i don't yeah. know or it also depends on how they position it because you can you could position it as an ios clamshell and yeah. then you nicely sidestep a lot of the mac issues so what are we we're we're we've got thursday friday saturday yep. sunday monday so we're five days out from the keynote I'm going to say five days out from the keynote, we have less, we have fewer rumors about what might be in the keynote than any year I can remember. Yeah. Terribly exciting. Yeah. I'm thrilled. All right. (laughs) Anything else? I got to. No. Yeah. You got to go. So I'm looking forward to seeing you on Monday. All right. Yeah. I can't wait to see you eat too. Um, It'll be fun. Uh, Everybody can follow Renee on Twitter. At Renee at Renee Ritchie, and of course uh, you can see all of the fine work from him and his his very talented staff at imore.com. I'm sure they all have extensive coverage of the keynote <laughs> uh, and all the news on Monday. <laughs>